0: Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with James Pearson. So lots of piano and Ronnie Scott's talk coming up. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. One new record to recommend today from friend of the show and friend of the festival, Emma Smith. Think Pink is her new single and is available on your usual streaming services. The song promises to banish the burgundy and bury the beige. So, unless that's a snooker reference, it's loaded with all the hope that a long winter is behind us and it's definitely time to think pink like the cherry blossoms of spring. Oh, and it's also got the mercurial abilities of James Saphir, or Jamie Saphir on keys. Now, Emma is of course a house singer at Ronnie Scott's, And with Ronnie's in mind, I've got a real treat for you today with our season finale. So if you've been through the club in recent years, there is a very high chance that you've heard James Pearson on the piano. Raconteur, keeper of fantastic fingers, recorder of more albums than the England cricket team can score test match runs, artistic director of Ronnie Scott's, and, I've got it on very good authority, custodian of a marvellous collection of 78 records,
1: which we'll definitely get to. But James Pearson, welcome to the Watford Jacks Junction. How is life? Hello and welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Life's okay at the moment as much as it can be for any musician in this stage, in this stage of pandemicness. if you see what I mean.
0: I see what you mean. Are you managing to get out at all? Are you going to the club?
1: Um, I've been, yeah, I usually go in once a week for just sort of catch-up meetings and things like that. And uh, obviously, it's been doing a few streams. I'm doing one this Sunday, and I've done quite a lot of streams. But apart from that, um, I've just been practicing a lot of music.
0: Well, this is this is a good opportunity, I should imagine, for everyone to be practicing, if you're a novelist, turning out novels. But I presume it's pretty weird being in the club, right, without without
1: patrons? It's the most strange thing. You have to change the whole energy of the way you perform, uh, stream, then obviously, it's quite strange not having an audience there. In a sense, it's quite fun. When we do the, the big band or the larger ensembles, um, you get to use the whole club because of the social distancing. So when some of the band might be in the pit where normally there'd be an audience. So it, you can definitely feel as if there were people, but you tend to be playing to the musicians rather than an audience as such. So
0: how come jazz? Was it? Is it always just start off with you with the piano when you're a little boy, that type of thing? What happened?
1: Well, actually, uh, I started off all sorts of music, playing a lot of classical music. I still play a lot of classical music. Um, I've got a few concerts. Uh, in fact, I've got one next week playing uh, Bernstein and Andre Previn. But um, essentially, I liked improvised music and jazz was definitely the best medium for that. Um, I would take the classical pieces and then sort of do my own v- variations of them when I was very little. I started playing when I was about six years old, um, so I've been doing it a long time. Um, did all the grades and then went to the Guildhall did classical music there because I wasn't allowed to do jazz Because it was such a long time ago. It wasn't quite as open-minded as it is now and then um, Just got a job in a place called the Jazz Bistro in Farringdon Road The Jazz Bistro is a great fun It's one of you can see pictures of it It's in one of those sort of websites of lost jazz venues of London um, and it was a great experience for me all those years ago Running the jam, meeting people. Courtney Pine used to come down, and, and uh, Giles Peterson started his career wow. DJing downstairs. It was things like that. It was very much a sort of the emerging scene. Um, there was one time when the Royal Academy of Music had its jazz department up the road in Farringdon, and uh, they often used to come down on Friday nights. Kenny Wheeler came in, Norma Winstone, um, Hugh Fraser, all those guys and ladies and uh, it was great fun including Kylie Minogue who once came and the enthusiastic Italian owner Sergio Lodi was so excited that Kylie Minogue came and uh, of course (laughs) Kylie was very famous at the time and uh, she still is very famous, but she was, you know, the. <laughs> you see what I mean, um, and uh, so of course he got so excited, um, and he thought, "This is it. The venue has made it. They'll all be back <laughs> next Friday." And, it, and he got really excited, and they never came back. But <laughs> it was just, it was just, it was great fun, and certainly I learned a lot about music. I used to play yeah, with yeah. Ricardo Dos Santos and Gene Caldorazo in those days, um, and Matt Skelton, Jeremy Brown, all those um, musicians. I met Alex Garnett down there, and. Uh, yeah, there's lots of great musicians. Orphe used to go down there, um, Courtney Pine, as I said. Uh,
0: well, we're doing our level best to get Orphe Robinson on the show uh, coming up soon. So how come Ronnie Scott's? How have you ended up as the artistic director there?
1: Well, I've been how the about 2006 when Sally Green and Michael Watt bought the club. Um, Leo Green was then put in place as a, sort of the booker and the artistic director. And he put me in, in charge of the house band, which was essentially at that time the James Pearson Trio. And then we created the name the Ronnie Scott's All Stars, which meant I could actually have a night off by put, putting someone else in. Well, you know, and so that's how the, the original trio started all those years ago. Um, and uh, it was like a backing band when Ronnie's first opened under the new regime in 2006. We had to do so many sets of music a night it was a uh, we did one at 6:30 then we did one at 730 then one at 8:30 with a bigger band with a singer and uh, then the main attraction would come on which was usually sort of the American then we'd do a late show so we were doing about six hours worth of playing every night for about four years Leo left I just took over from his job really basically and carried on um, booking the booking the bands at the club and uh, getting involved in the creative shape of what Ronnie's uh, did and does then. So, how important
0: is the legacy of the club? Because obviously we're going back over sixty years now. But I guess there's sort of big shoes to fill and huge reference points in, you know, Ronnie Scott and Pete King and then Leo. Do you feel the freedom to 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 go in new paths, or do you always think there's actually a Ronnie Scott's way, and I've got to keep true to that?
1: Very good question. Um, the the thing, the thing about Ronnie Scott's the club is. In a sense, Ronnie Scott himself was an amazing saxophone player. And in 1959, when they started it, it was a very new thing. There wasn't any sort of all, uh, you know, dedicated jazz clubs. Really, there were clubs, but they did blues and they did other music. And but Ronnie Scott's was a dedicated modern jazz club. And uh, the audiences then are different to what they are now because Ronnie Scott's the club has become such a famous thing. Almost sometimes you forget that Ronnie Scott was a great musician himself. I like to remember that, um, you know, and we often play pieces that he wrote or pieces he would have played. A lot of the Tubby Hayes stuff and things. He was a great saxophone player. So I sort of feel a connection with the fact that Ronnie was a great musician. And that's very much something that I do like to make sure that there's musicians involved in the running of the club, um, which is very important because in these days and ages it's easily forgotten. Um, And I think that's why Ronnie Scott's club survived for 62 years or 61 and a half years or even through the, the the sort of the years when it was in the eighties, when it was very hard and jazz didn't have an audience, they were able to slightly sort of change. But At the end of the day, Ronnie Scott was able to appeal to the musicians because musicians like talking to musicians; they don't like talking to sort of office people, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. The um, so you mentioned Tubby Hayes there, and you do also mentioned in in uh, previously um, about the American. The so I know that Tubby Hayes did a sort of. A job swap, right, to go to America, which allowed some American musicians to come to, to Ronnie's, which is one of the sort of great administrative tricks that the Ronnie's undertook in the early days. Absolutely. But for your money, do you think the Americans still think about heading to Ronnie Scott's as the numero uno place in Europe?
1: I think they very much do. Um, for a while they didn't, but they definitely do now. I mean, we have all the major sort of Americans. England is a sort of routine for Europe. A lot of the times the musicians, they might have concerts in Spain or Germany or France and uh, like Marciac or something like that. And then they'll try and route it so they can come to London first and perform at Ronnie's um, if we can get the route in. the, The way Ronnie's has changed in the sense that in the old days you had a guy or a girl um, play for a month sometimes you'd have uh, Elvin Jones would do three weeks at a time chuchu Valdez would play for a month uh, Irikire, all those bands nowadays you, there's very few musicians that can get an audience that would come every night for a month to hear them play and so it's like maybe two or three days and then it's usually so it's a bit more complicated if someone's on their way down to France then we can try and route it so they come to Ronnie's and it makes the whole thing more cost effective for them and for us so that's the way we like to work it out and uh, yeah yeah
0: have you ever had a night where you've had an embarrassment of riches where you've had like two or three musicians saying we all want to play tonight and this is your only chance to have us
1: it always happens there's always a loser in that sense because a lot of the big festivals well i mean these this will probably change this year but a lot of the festivals all tend to be sort of you know in october and, and so suddenly everybody wants to play and Ronnie's in October. And so we'll get all this. And we go, yeah, that's great, fantastic. And then, oh, oh, hang on, he's really good. She's amazing. Oh, my goodness. You know, and then we get all these emails through. And then the next day, oh, no, we've just committed to so-and-so. And now we can have so-and-so. So yeah, it does, that de- definitely does happen. So it's more about advance notice. I mean, we have emails from agencies, you know, saying, oh, Dee Bridgewater is around in, you know, 2025.
0: <laughs> Sweet <laughs> like Lord, that. right. Okay. Yeah, it's
1: quite it's quite ridiculous and you know and well some of the ronnie scott's all-stars dates are now in 2024 um it's it's quite surreal when you know that whatever happens you're going to be in hastings in 2024 or march 16th or whatever it is
0: yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah
1: but that is one of the things of the way it is um you know it's mod it's everything is a much more sort of ahead of the game
0: So I was watching um, on Netflix idly yesterday, a Miles Davis uh, documentary, which I think is called Rebirth of the Call. It might just be called Birth of the Call. But either way, you'll get it if you put in Miles Davis. And it was talking about his first trip to Europe and he headed to Paris. uh, And it really opened his mind, you know, to some pretty heavy artistic influences. You know, he'd met Jean-Paul Sartre, etc., when you, sort of musicians float around today, I guess the world is a lot more connected it, than it used to be. How important do you think that flow of artistry is, or do you think that people get the influences they need just by sitting at home in Louisiana or here in sunny London or or wherever?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think that it's very easy to be sit in, at home and you and do everything on the internet. As a performer, it's very much the uh, that extra buzz you get on the stage when you connect with other musicians, sometimes people you've never met before, and that energy you certainly can't get whilst you know getting inspired on watching um, Netflix and things like that. However, it's a great this because there's so much access to to everything now, which there wasn't even when I was growing up. Um, you know, if I want to hear how Miles Davis played a certain thing, there's usually a film of him. You can get it, everything straight away. In the old days, you used to go to get your record, like, as you said, I've got this big collection of 78s, you play it, and then you'd get it out the case, and that whole rigmarole makes slightly more of an, of an occasion of playing music, listening to music, especially when you listen to vinyl, because you get it out of the sleeve, you put it on, you, it's not... you know what I mean? And uh, sometimes that sense of occasion, that sense of, wow, this is someone spent a lot of time creating it, that sometimes gets lost a bit, if you see what I mean, um, because of the modern way. Um, yeah. However, because there's such a huge access to everything, it's also amazing. I could suddenly listen to music from the middle of, you know, somewhere in Africa. And then I could suddenly go to Australia. You've got the whole world tour of music, which you couldn't get in the old days. So, yeah, it's it's different, isn't it? You
0: brought them up now. I want to talk about 78. So listeners may know that I've got a couple of 78s hanging around. And I I did a show, um, which isn't particularly a plug, because I think it's gone and been, so you can't hear it now. But uh, it was on Worldwide FM uh, with a friend called George. He's got the most amazing collection of 78. 78s too, and he was picking out some most extraordinary stuff that I haven't heard from South America and from Africa um, on 78s, from, you know, the 30s and the 40s and and, and, in, and even earlier. For your mind, we can talk about the beauty of a 78 as, as a thing, but how important do you think, you know, those old collections of music are and were for influencing the musicians who we all now rate and uh, still think about today?
1: Well, that's a... the. 78 for me I mean I first had a 78 given to me my grandparents when I was about 8 or 9 and it was Fat Swallow and it sort of got the buzz of not only the music but it also got the buzz of playing old 78 sometimes they break they're very fragile there's something sort of romantic mm. about it the, the scratch of it the, the sort of thing about it but what I love about them now as an older person is that you respect the fact that 78s have basically catalogued the entire history of jazz apart from Buddy Bolden because there's a usually some recording the development of the records is synonymous with that of the jazz music they sort of hit their you know in the 1920s everybody was buying gramophones playing 78s before that there were piano rolls or music boxes the actual recorded music of the day was in a sense, early jazz and that's what people were buying and then of course Uh, music was recorded but so there are musical examples of every jazz musician which i really love that is synonymous with the development of 78s i think it also helped i mean in the in the the, certainly in the the days of early of british jazz it was essential so that you know we didn't get to hear charlie parker over here or anybody in the in the 1940s or 50s um so it was Seventy Eights that carried that music, transported it, and they were they used to send the dubbing presses over to England so that vocalian records would then be pressed over here on another label, but they would look the same. It would be the same master presses on a different label. And then sometimes bands would be rebranded a different band. So there's a certain amount of um sort of deciphering. There was a guy called Brian Rust who literally went through every Jazz seventy eight tried to find as much personnel, but he did these books in the 60s before the internet or anything like that. So it's quite incredible um, the amount of research and people like Brian Rust and all these great sort of um, academics, in a sense, who had, he had his own radio show as well. It's it, the work they did on preserving the names of the people who recorded those 78s. is quite amazing, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of those labels have, have long disappeared now um, that used to be in such jazz epicentres uh as bedford <laughs> yeah uh, etc but um but yeah i mean really really important stuff and i just won this is a bit of a, a tangent i guess um so the trad revival of the sort of 50s and 60s i guess owed as much to 78s and the fact that all those youngsters were listening to stuff as it it was to the, the 78s informing tubby hayes and understanding you know what was happening in
1: bebop yeah it's absolutely um the trad revival was very interesting because, in a sense, that really got British jazz going. It may be on the wrong path to a certain because it certainly didn't help modern jazz. Um, yeah. And you know, it's it's trad jazz is a sort of safety. Now, unfortunately, it's it's a bit contrived in the sense that it's a sort of stereotypical. We met you imagine these people with straw boater hats and things like that, and that's not what trad jazz is actually about. But there was a perception up until maybe even 20 years ago that jazz was that by the certain generation that got into it in the late 50s and modern jazz was definitely frowned upon you know if you look at some of the old melody makers they had all these amazing there was venues that just played trad jazz like ken coiler's club Mm. and things like that whereas ronnie's was very much a modern jazz and people weren't used to that sound nowadays because again a bit like what we were talking about the recordings you can see the great jazz musicians influences you can hear charlie parker making reference to louis armstrong solos and things like that Which are now, they were recorded in the 20s, some of those Louis Armstrong records. But when Charlie Mm. Parker did it, they were only 30 years old. Now they're nearly 100 years old. And so it's wonderful when young jazz musicians make reference to the old classic tunes, like the West End Blues or Muskrat Ramble and things like that. Um, and it shows they, their knowledge of the history of the music, which is very important, really, as it's improvised, if you know what I mean.
0: So uh, you mentioned some of the younger players. What, what's exciting you on the UK scene right now? Who's making you go, they're going to be a legend, or if we're not getting them in the club, we're missing a trick? Who's rocking it in, in the UK, as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, I like Ashley Henry, the pianist. Um, I think he's incredible. Um, yeah. Nubiah Garcia, amazing. Beats and pieces. There's some amazing eclectic... Um, music on the scene. Um, yeah, the late what's really suffered at Ronnie Scott's, in my opinion, due to the pandemic is the late show because Ronnie Scott's really, as far as music is concerned, obviously it has the main bands and things like that, and that's what keeps the place going financially. But the late show has such a great, vibrant, uh, vibrant, eclectic scene, which has not been happening for a year because of the pandemic. And that's where you will get the you know the young generation will come and they will play their shows and they will jam and Alex Garnet would run it or something like that and that's how you get to meet and hear these musicians and that's sadly has gone so that sense of community has really suffered um, inter- you know internationally but certainly at Ronnie's that's where the, the opportunity to meet and play with the other musicians. It just hasn't happened and the late show is something that you get to hear these guys so
0: yeah and so like for those not familiar with it what 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 often happens at ronnie will have a, a, a couple of sort of main sets uh or occasionally one and then afterwards there's a little break and they reset the house the admission price changes and then you get different different bands come on and it's always great to be there if you've been to the the second sort of main set as you watch some of the younger musicians come in with the horns on the back etc and the, and the vibe does change.
1: Yeah very much so I think the scene has really suffered from that sense of the, there's no community at the moment the, the heart of the jazz industry the heart of the music industry has become the internet at the moment which is fine but being in the same room and chatting you know that stuff that doesn't require any effort just That can happen in venues and in places like Ronnie Scott's or the 606 or other jazz clubs when, you know, there's an area for musicians to just be and hang and talk. And that doesn't really happen on the internet, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And that, you know, at Ronnie's for the late show, you never know who's going to turn up. I mean, sometimes it could be Lady Gaga or Stevie Wonder will turn up or um, Esperanza Spalding could be in the room. There's been times when Brad Melt. whoa,
0: whoa, 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 James. So, we'll get on to Esperanda and Brad in a second. You've had Stevie Wonder and Lady Gaga rock up.
1: Yes, well, we knew about the Lady Gaga because her, in fact, a chap who was playing the, um, the cello with her in the orchestra, she was supposed to be playing with Tony Bennett, but Tony Bennett was ill for the second night, so they cancelled the concert. Um, and uh, this chap called Matthew, a classical cellist, ran me up, so, I don't suppose there's anything going at the 12 o'clock tonight because Lady Gaga wants to play at Ronnie's and I didn't believe a word of it, but I, I sort of said, well, <laughs> is she actually going to rock up? Because, yeah, she'll rock up. And I knew her trumpet player, a guy called Brian as well. He's amazing. And, uh, he was actually, has known her since he was about five. So he's sort of hit her right hand man musically. Yeah. And, uh, so he then called me and said, no, she is definitely going to come. Um, and she wants to play. And I, so I, I, I rang up this, the door girl, and, then Paula and said, There's a small chance that Lady Gaga might turn up tonight. Still not believing it. (laughs) And then about sort of three hours later, this was about three o'clock in the afternoon, um, I got a phone call from the evening stand saying, is it true Lady Gaga's playing at Ronnie's tonight? And gradually things escalated. And sure enough, she turned up at midnight with her gold Rolls Royce. Standard. Did half an hour sets. Strutted around the stage. Managed to break the house base at the time because of some stage management. In other words, she was... uh, treating it as if it was a object of desire. Um it was fantastic. <laughs> it was such an amazing amazing energy and then she to, to, to add it all she got a parking ticket. <laughs> well, I guess
0: if you've got a, a gold rolls Royce, you know, parking ticket on Frith Street's just not not going to trouble you.
1: The amazing photos of her leaving the club. Um it by the time the word had spread then it was, you know, the whole of Frith Street was packed full of paparazzi but it was kept we tried to keep it pretty sort of low key. Um, that's one of the great things about Ronnie is they don't really make a big fuss when celebs are in, in the building because suddenly it, it's such a small place you know it's somewhere and it's quite dark inside so it's quite nice um, and that's another reason why they don't allow photography in there it's not only for the band's protection it's because sometimes you could be in Ronnie Scott's with someone you're not supposed to be if you see what I mean and uh, there's all those sort of things that goes on
0: I mean I appreciate that on a personal level because obviously a lot of people are trying to, to pap me all the time
1: well that's right but, um, yeah
0: I mean I have had a I mean I mean I've seen several famous faces in there in the time but I've I've sat uncomfortably next to uh, Sebastian Coe and uh, realized that if I leaned back I was going to knock out a royal prince which is all quite <laughs> exciting it's like but there's no sort of fuss is there once you're in there I'm not trying to like over
1: do the mystique but it's just like you know what this is obviously only about the music There was one time a classic time when um, Al Jarreau was playing at Ronnie's, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson was in was in the uh, the club as well, and we didn't even know he was there. And the next thing I know is that suddenly someone said, "Oh, that's Jesse Jackson," and uh, there was a whole line of people just wanted to touch him, and he was doing his thing, and he was wonderful. And then he's oh. they sort of push you know, and this was in the break of Al Giro and then he, then as soon as the Al started again they all just went back to their seats. It was it was rather wonderful, but um again, you know
0: uh, extraordinary. But since you brought up Brad, um Aldo and Esperanza Spalding, I mean if if they rock up, do they then hang around to do the to play with the the sort of the the younger musicians as well, or are they very much? Do you know I'm not here to jam. I'm just going to play my piece, or I'm going to listen to something. I mean, how fluid is the relationship, or is that again stuff of, of previous eras?
1: Well, actually, I think especially in the London Jazz Festival, when you've got all these, Amer- these amazing musicians internationally from all over the world, um, yeah, they if they know where there's a late night hang, they will do that. They will go there and often play, and that's the time you know in November when it's a Jazz Festival. When Esperanza, if she's got her own gig maybe in the Barbican or um, the Albert Hall wherever it is or King's Place, she will often, everybody sort of goes to Ronnie's about midnight and that's where the real energy happens and you then could get Esperanza playing with some British guys and that always happens because it's all about the music, you know. When jazz musicians are on stage, they don't care about anything apart from just making an amazing piece of music. No, but even the great jazzers will still quite happily, if the musicians on stage are inspiring, they will just quite happily play with them. Um, it's as simple as that, really. It's, sometimes you have to create that opportunity, so get a few guys in the yeah. same room. But if there's a buzz going on, for example, um, when about 2007, there was a jam session going on, and Wynton Marsalis, this was before he played in the club, he was in playing in the Barbican, but he then came and played every night in the, in the late show in fact it was one of sort of the early starts of how the late show started because but what was got Winton to play was actually a guy called Mike Yanish did a solo on the bow and as soon as Winton heard Mike Yanish do this solo on the bow he said hey that's really cool that white guy playing the bowl and it was that whole thing that tickled Winton's sort of boat at the time and then he the next thing he was on the piano and uh, um and etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's how these sort of things happen
0: kudos for your Winton Marsalis impression I mean other American accents are available but uh, we're loving it now with,
1: <laughs> I, had to with- take his, I had to take his son to Bar Italia for a coffee oh yeah? His, his son was a, his son was about six at the time. No, it was there was they were sorting whilst they were sorting out the sound check, I think the son was at that age that he was a bit oh come on, can we get on with it? And uh, so we went over yeah. to Bar Italia and <laughs> had coffee instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, every six year old needs an extra shot of espresso. The um <laughs> nah. Um so here you are. We've 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 strayed back across the Atlantic and to great musicians. Um here is my set question of the day, Mr Pearson. Bill Evans. Thelonious Monk or Oscar
1: Peterson? Discuss. Well, they're all completely different, all wonderful pianists. And, and if you could add Errol Garner into it, they'd be my top four pianists, really. All um, oh, right, yeah. We love Errol Garner. I, um, as I, when I studied music at the Guildhall, Bill Evans was, was the rage as far as... Sort of, because he was the guy that sort of did something different with the piano trio... Um, very much the interplay of the modern piano trios, is very much due to the way Bill Evans worked with Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion with the interplay and that he freed up the way mm-hmm. you physically play the instrument. Oscar Peterson's trio, in a sense, it was Ray Brown in Oscar. It was like a solo pianist playing with a trio, if you see what I mean, whereas the Bill Evans trio was very much playing together. And Monk is just incredible because... His quirky, his his rhythm. Even when he plays solo, you can hear that there's a, probably a trio going on in his head. If you see what I mean? Um, his rhythm was absolutely phenomenal. Right, Yes, um, exactly. And the older I get, the more I appreciate the sort of the the monk way of playing because. It was it was wonderful that he had a career, being able to play and write music um, like that, that still gets played to this day. It's absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the marks, isn't it? It's whether when you listen to something, it still feels relevant. So, not trying to wrap this all together, particularly, but if you listen to those seventy eights of the Hot Five, and the, you know, from from the from the nineteen twenties, if you're talking about Louis Armstrong, it's still to my ear, if you can get over the fact that it's playing on a seventy eight in a little bit. Other sound effects are available as well. Um, it's it's relevant. It feels, to me, as dynamic as, you know, having brought her up, Lady Gaga does. Not because it feels modern. It just feels relevant. And if you go through the the guys that you've just mentioned, and we will include Errol Garner in there, the legacy they leave is one of relevance. Um, not because it can't be replicated, but because they do something that seems so unique and special that you just want to go, I only want to listen to that, because he or she does it just perfectly
1: yeah absolutely totally
0: so we're at that sort of time as we're sorting to to conclude and wrap up a bit Um, I'd like to know or the the listener of Watford Jazz Junction would like to know
1: what are your top three albums of all time well um, there's so many albums as as you know you depend because with jazz music you get get in the mood for certain things um i tend to very i very rarely listen to jazz at home but if i do the top three without a doubt would be night train by oscar peterson which is a sort of the iconic album with a uh, night train on it and sea jam blues and uh, it's just very very beautifully um recorded um and his pl- playing is you know it's in the early 60s this album it's got him to freedom the first version of him to freedom um on it and it's just an incredible Wonderful playing the Silas aren't, you know, it doesn't go on. Every track is memorable, and his piano playing is superb. So, Night Train, I would definitely say Oscar Peterson Trio.
0: James Pearson has named the first person so far to name one of Chris's top three favourite albums of all time. I agree. Oh, good. So, you've locked that in at number one. At number two.
1: Okay, I'm second with pianists for all of these albums. Um, so, Concert by the Sea, Errol Garner. Do you know that one?
0: Hmm. I've heard it. I, d- I can't say I listen to it regularly. I've only listened to it probably once or twice, and that was years ago.
1: The reason I particularly like it, apart from the fact there's an amazing photo on the front cover of Carmel Beach, which in fact it wasn't recorded on Carmel Beach. It was it was in a sort of army base, but it's sheer joy in the piano playing. And I when I first heard this record many years ago, I couldn't. I've never never heard Errol Garner play with his amazing style and his grunts and his incredible right hand. But what is amazing about this record, is just such fun and it really swings. It's probably one of the most swinginess albums of all jazz. Um, and, you know, from I'll Remember April's on it, Misty, which Errol Garner wrote, um, yeah. and all his rumbas and mambos that he did, it sort of encapsulates that style of positive. It's just one of the most positive albums I've ever heard. And so I would recommend that absolutely. Concert by the Errol Garner recording in Carmel. Wonderful. Um, Thank you very much. And therefore, we've got one spot left. So, What's at number three? It's either of the Bill Evans live albums from the Village Vanguard. There was one called Sunday at the Village Vanguard or Walls for Debbie. They were actually recorded at the same time and then mixed up. So if I was to go with Live at the Village Vanguard, which has got glorious Step on it, and uh, Walls for Debbie, all those wonderful S- Scott LaFaro things. And it was recorded with two microphones. Um, that particular album uh, a few years ago i worked on the soundtrack for beyond the sea and phil ramone the legendary record producer who then went on to work with paul simon um, and rod stewart was the guy involved in miking up the bill evans trio and he had to sit in the van when they did those son- those village vanguard sessions he was 18 year old violinist at juilliard wanting to become a sound engineer and uh, he was the sort of the keep an eye on everything had been set up and so and he said that after these sessions bill evans would go in and he would meticulously listen through to the recordings and he would often just dismiss a recording a take if there was just one thing that he felt wasn't right about And he said that phil ramone said the way bill evans listened to his own recordings really taught phil that extra level that bill evans searched for when he played and recorded jazz you know um, mm. i think it's an interesting thing cuz now when you when you play jazz for a performance to a live audience um, it's very much you're playing in that moment of time sometimes those things work very well as recordings but other times they just don't it doesn't quite capture it so the way people record jazz has actually changed now because you 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 have to think about the way people listen to music um, what they're listening to music on because listening to music is not such an event as it used to be um, many mm. years ago. So it's actually changed the way you compose and um, record jazz, if you see what I mean.
0: There's that classic photo of um, recording Birth of the Call cool, where Miles Davis is around a single microphone with like a clarinet player, trombone, trumpet, sax, and they're all just around one mic. And mm-hmm. it, it seems to me to call me to a bit about what you were saying earlier about focusing on a single thing at a single point in time, like the way a, a record does or an album it doesn't have to be a 78 or putting on a CD. But when it's not a casual encounter where everything's just recorded and it can be equalized out later or we can do another cut, that's something immediate about it. And I think trying to capture that in in jazz is, you know, for me would be the goal. But I, I guess perfection is a, is another is another temptation from any musician who's recording especially if they're in a studio
1: It's interesting because you know nowadays everything can be edited and changed if you record to tape now then that's a completely different thing because you have to play with an extra level of commitment because A there's not much tape around but B um, the editing is so much harder to do it on tape in the traditional way so therefore you give it much more of a performance I've done a couple of albums which I've recorded to tape and it's been wonderful because the actual performance, in a sense, 90% of the actual track we've recorded has been fine. And then we just had a few little tweaks because you have to get the main body of it has to be there. It's a bit like doing an actual concert recording to tape. Now, sometimes, um, you get people that cut an album directly yeah. to vinyl with no tape involved. It's literally played live straight away, 20 minutes, play, cut to vinyl. And, you know, Snarky Puppy have done that in, in Holland and... Uh, it's, it's it's that and therefore because you know you're going to have to record you commit to a higher level because you can't edit it is there and yeah, it's That's amazing it. right and it does change the, um, the way you play
0: uh, night dreamer uh, the label do that in 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 holland probably at the same studio right where you can cut straight well record and cut straight to the to the disc but it's it's got me thinking james that we should hatch a plan to record live a 78 and find the way to record into shellac, right? Make yeah, it, it can
1: be done. It can be done because I've thought about doing that. It's very not. It's not going to be cost effective. It's it's very expensive to do one seventy eight.
0: Nothing that the Watford Jazz Junction does is cost effective.
1: If we, <laughs> if we get exactly how to make a, how to make a million out of jazz start off with two
0: <laughs> two million
1: genius. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a lot of truth in that, right? So you're. You're almost done, my friend, but I do want to introduce you to our house band. Um, for regular listeners, you'll know we have a regular house band made up of seven able musicians. And currently in our lineup, we've got Vi Red on alto, we've got Mark Nightingale on trombone, yeah. and Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. And there in the back line, we've got uh, Duke Ellington, John Patatucci on bass, and Brian Blades on drums. And then, as our secret wonderful. seventh musician, we have Leanne Carroll on vocals and back up. Piers. Ah, wonderful. But, James, I'm a generous soul, as I always say, so I'm going to let you review the setup, and you can change up to one, and I repeat one, Clark Rundell, of the players.
1: <laughs> Why did Clark Rundell put him? change them all? <laughs> <laughs> Something
0: like that. Eddie Parker added one, so he, so he ended up with eight for a while.
1: Oh, did he? Oh, right. Oh, cool. Well, I mean,
0: but you can do what you can do what you like, sir.
1: Now let's have a look. Um, John Patitucci, by Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, Mark Nightingale, um, Leanne and Vi. I wouldn't want to change any of them. I might like to bring someone else in. Maybe bring a uh, bring a guitar in for a bit of fun or something like that. I tell
0: you what, because because we have precedent for it, I'm not liking it because it worries me that I'm going to have to pay an extra musician. Uh, but you're absolutely right. We haven't got a guitar player. And I was thinking about guitar players when you were talking about the Oscar Peterson trio earlier uh, and the great Herb Ellis, who, who, re- who doesn't always get referenced alongside Ray Brown.
1: Herb Ellis, absolutely wonderful, yeah. But who would you like to add in? Well, I think so- I'd probably go for John Schofield Ooh. or something like that. John Schofield? It's a bit spicy, you know, something like that. Um, so that really just concludes where we're up to today.
0: So... Thanks for being with us today, James. Uh, we can't wait to hear you again in Watford at some point. We saw you recently at the Coliseum with the uh, the All-Stars. But who knows when, you, when you'll be back. Um, but do definitely tune in uh, to some of the lockdown sessions on YouTube from Ronnie Scott's. There's so much going on at the minute, despite the fact that these are unusual times. Uh, to launch series three, we're going to be in conversation with the awesome uh, Camilla George. Um, And moreover, if you've liked what you've listened to, make sure you subscribe to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast so you don't miss any of the valuable episodes. If you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website or follow us on Twitter or Facebook or whatever there is. Um, Remember, there ain't no better, there ain't no worse. It's just music. Um, So it's goodbye to you, lovely listener, and it's goodbye to you,
1: James. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye.